Uh, let's see. All right, let's move on to Ethiopia. Let's move on to Ethiopia. Yeah. I love that. So picture, just by the to way. recap for for all the the new people in here, we're talking about three specific populations who live at high altitude. First, we talked about the Andes, so p- places in South America that are at high altitude in the Andes. They make more red blood cells. Yes. And then we talked <laughs> about Tibet. Right <laughs> they have a different strategy, and they generally just breathe more and breathe better. They got bigger lungs have. and breathe faster. Yes. Um, and now we are moving on to Ethiopia. That's the, the TLDR version. So the Ethiopians have been studied long, have been studied less than any other group. The Andeans and Tibetans <clears throat> have been pretty well studied. It's easy to get to these people. Yes. Um, in general, at least it has been. So researchers have gone to South America. They've gone to China or Nepal. But very few researchers have spent time in Ethiopia. But then Cynthia Bell and, and colleagues, and Otto Appenzeller that we've talked about, some other folks have made, made their way down to Ethiopia. And they wanted to know, hey, there's some people that live at 10,000 feet in Ethiopia. What are they up to? Do they have the same kinds of things that the Indians or the Tibetans do? And the short answer is no. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, snap. Twist. Yeah. All right, let's, let's, let's check them out. M. Night Shyamalan's here. <laughs> Plot twist. Yep. <laughs> The food looks delicious. Doesn't it? Yeah. This is my favorite I'm really glad that you put the food on there. I'm Mm. like, "Mm." I want some good Ethiopian food. (laughs) Totally. Oh, yeah. Peruvian potatoes, Mm -hmm. Ethiopian food. That's right. We just love food. Tibetan fermented yak milk. Oh, so delicious. Oof. That's the way to go. Oof. (laughs) I would drink it. Sounds delicious. I, (laughs) I I would probably have a pretty high probability of being allergic to it. Well, apparently everybody that goes to... uh, I think it's called Ferrachi. <clears throat> on their way up to Everest Base Camp, mm-hmm. ends up with a violent diarrhea. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's the downside. That's no good. Mm-hmm. So, so, so he's, is he's there anything worse than having to go outside at 500 degrees below zero in a windstorm <laughs> on a death trap of a mountain? Yes, it's having to do it every 15 minutes. <laughs> so, I, so you know, I showed you the picture of Cotopaxi and my, my friend Andy Brainerd and his now wife. Jordan, they climbed Timborasa, which is the highest peak in Ecuador. And Andy did this with a violent dysentery. And he was doing Yikes. that. Every crevasse got painted on the way up with uh, Dang. Andy's pit stops. Sorry, Andy, if you're watching. <laughs> Had to put that out there. <laughs> oh, man. You know, it's funny. There's been times I've thought, I wonder if I should do more of this wilderness stuff. And tonight has cured me completely. <laughs> That's good. So anyway, the Ethiopians, let's, let's check them yes. out. Yes. All right. What do we got? They live at almost 12,000 feet, so pretty high, but not quite as high as, as some of the other people. So kind of like what we saw. So this has to do with the brain. So remember, the brain with hypoxia in us, it opens the pipes, makes, makes your brain swell. Right. Makes, makes fluid leak out, ultimately gives you a cerebral edema. So it starts off with a headache. The next thing you know, you're not making any sense. You're stumbling, you're bumbling, and you're in a coma. So the Ethiopians don't get this. They don't get that cerebral vasodilation with hypoxia. They use nitric oxide, which we've talked about a bunch of times here. Mm-hmm. They use it in a totally different way. And they don't regulate their brain with nitric oxide the way that we do. That protects them from the cerebral edema that we would get. And in fact, acute mountain sickness doesn't seem to happen hardly at all. It happens rarely among Ethiopians. So if you wanted to assemble a crack, you know, high altitude climbing team, You'd really want to have some Ethiopians on your group. Now, that leads to a couple of interesting questions. One is, mm-hmm. what is the trade-off? What is the cost of not having uh, the nitrous o- uh, nitrogen oxide work in their brain that way? Well, maybe they wouldn't deal with strokes as well as well Possibly <laughs> I mean, as not. we do, right? Yeah, yeah. Or also, a brain injury. Um, the way functional MRIs often work, yeah. now, it's not the only way. There's a bunch of different approaches. Mm-hmm. But one common one is to look at vasodilation and oxygen delivery to mm. areas that are more active. Right. Would the patterns on for them on functional MRI be significantly different than? So we got to get some Ethiopians into the functional That's MRI. That's an interesting yeah. question. That is awesome. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Huh. But I like, I like the way you think, though. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah. we've talked about this. You, you you come across a solution, but is there a downside? <laughs> there's always yeah, a price, sure. and there's, there's always be, a downside. There's always a price to pay. Yeah, for sure. We've not been able to find it for the Ethiopians. <clears throat> oh, oh, yeah. hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Next one. Bloop. This shows that the Ethiopians are just like people from LA at altitude. Oh they, wow. Their hemoglobins don't go up at all. It's only the it's only the Amira. These are the Bolivian Andeans that are way off the charts. Wow. Yeah, so the, the Ethiopians they look very much like Tibetans really. Yep. Huh. 
who look very much like us. Right. At sea level. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. It's cool because it, it we're essentially pointing out that there are many different strategies for dealing with the same problem. There's at least three. That we know of. Yeah. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. And there, all of these are adaptations that are happening independent of each other because they're in totally geographically isolated groups. Yeah. You end up with the same result, which is success right. living at altitude. That part's called convergent evolution. Yes. Yep. So this is why you can have saguaro cactus in Arizona that looks a lot like um, a cactus in South Africa. Mm-hmm. They came across the same way of dealing with living in a desert, but they're not related at all. The Moloch lizard in Australia looks almost identical to the horny toad in Arizona. They are also not related at all. No way. Um, Foxadelic is asking, any relation to cerebrovascular or cardiovascular response to hypoxia? Yeah, that's where we were just going a moment ago. Okay. Yes. And the answer is, <coughs> we don't know. Apparently, that wasn't one of the questions that got answered. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the reason why this is worth studying, besides the fact that it's just freaking cool and amazing, and remarkable yeah. that we can go out and find these people that are that have these incredible ways of dealing with environmental stresses. Yep. And they're not getting the headaches or the mountain sickness. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, like the um, rest of us. But it has real medical consequences. So we talked about like the growth retardation, the pregnancy complications. <clears throat> In China, they've moved a bunch of Han Chinese, the dominant group, to Tibet, and they have prematurity and babies that are born small, all kinds of health problems along with that. But this has. Implications for things like stroke, like we talked about, and things like heart attack. Hypoxia is an issue with all kinds of diseases that we see in the hospital. For and us. Coming back to that uh, question that we couldn't answer a second ago. Yes. One of my favorite quotes from Isaac Newton, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay. The larger my island of knowledge gets, the larger the coastline of new questions. Ooh. That's awesome. You know, like that. that sounds too good to be true, though. <clears throat> it's attributed to him. I know. If There's not, a... then I get it. Hey, it's me. Hey, you know, it's me. I would really much rather attribute that to, to Coffee Brown. I'm claiming it. There's no freaking way Isaac Newton said that, but I love it. <laughs> I love it. I, I love definitely it. love it. It, yeah. it sounds like a Coffee Brown quote, just but saying. Someone kind of needs to come up just with this because there are quotes attributed to Charles Darwin that he never said. Oh, yeah. yeah. There are quotes it's attributed actually really to Theodore common. Roosevelt, to Lincoln. I've yeah. kind of gotten um, tired of attributing quotes because yeah. they're almost always wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, you look it up wrong. and then yeah. you look it up on Snopes. And they're like, nope, never said it. Yeah. <laughs> if Isaac Newton didn't say that, then I'm claiming it. I think you should. I think you should. Moving along. Absolutely. No one has any idea who yep. said it. Nope. Yep. All right. All right. Here we go. Graph. Oh, I remember this. It's a bit of craziness here. I remember this. But this, we got the Ethiopians, we have the Tibetans, we have the Andeans, three different groups. Yep. And then yeah. sea level, so most everyone else. We're, yeah. We are not at sea level, so we do not count for that. We're more like, we're like halfway to... So our partial pressure of inspired oxygen, we could calculate it. Yeah. So the percentage of sea level... I just did that. It's 160. No, no, no. The percentage. If sea oh, level is 100%. Yeah, partial pressure. No, no. If, if at sea level... It's 100. If it's 100, then we're right. just going down from there. So we would be at 90, maybe. Yeah, it's probably something, something like, like that. that. 85, 90. Just based on this, this graph. Yes, that's right. Wahadi with, with the Abraham Lincoln quote, 69% of statistics on the internet are made up. <laughs> well done. Well played. Perfect attribution. I'm 62% sure Abraham Lincoln didn't say that. Yes, right. Yeah. Yep. I, w- I would go a little higher than that, but yeah, solid. solid. All right. Uh, so let's percentage. just summarize this graph. At sea level, <laughs> human beings have 100% of the oxygen available at sea level, yes. and they don't make more red blood cells. That's, that's, that's <clears throat> the erythrocytosis. Right. And they don't have low oxygen in their arteries. That's the arterial hypoxemia. Yep. So that's what we call normal. The Ethiopians, they have 64% the amount of oxygen with each breath. They also don't make more red blood cells. And if you measure the oxygen in their blood, it's normal. <gasps> Freaking cool. Snap. Right? Yeah. The Tibetans, Crazy. They, the Tibetans have, you know, they're, they're low, like, like the Ethiopians, at 60% of available oxygen. They don't make red blood cells, but if you measure their blood, the, blood, the oxygen level is low, as you'd expect. So the Ethiopians are doing something special. All right, that is cray cray. Andeans, their 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 oxygen levels are low. They make more red blood cells, and if you measure their blood, they are relatively hypoxic right. or hypoxemic. There's not as much oxygen. So what's cool about this is here the Ethiopians are sprinting around at twelve thousand feet, living, doing their having their thing, doing their lives, and if you measure their blood, you can't tell they're at high altitude. That's crazy. That's nuts. It is really crazy. 
I mean, since chills down my spine just thinking about it, like they've, they've come across some solution to this problem, which is different, obviously, from the Bolivians, different from the Tibetans, mm -hmm. and better, right? Right. Because uh, Yeah, theoretically. Yeah, it is better. We have a couple questions. So first, why use O2sat as the metric? Here they're taking arterial blood samples and running it through a, a blood gas machine <clears throat> and directly measuring how much oxygen is dissolved in the blood. So that's okay. different from when you put the little thing on your finger and it, it, it yeah, sends a little bit like, of light through your fingernail right. and it measures the oxygen saturation. So that's a that's an estimate of how much of your of your. Uh, Actually, I'd have said that the other way around. Yeah. The oxygen saturation on an ABG is calculated based partly on the temperature. That's why it's so important to record the temperature. But, but they, to, to keep it, uh, but at least in this study, but they're they're direct. They, I think that Cynthia Bell actually had a portable ABG machine out in the field, and to, to great great difficulty getting it out. There. <clears throat> um, but it's a it's a more it's a in, better measurement. The last time I looked in hospital labs, it's a calculated value. The O2 side is actually a calculated value based on the partial pressure of oxygen. So they uh, yes, they calculate the oxygen saturation based on the oxygen measured in the blood. Whereas. Right. The thing that you put on your finger is actually a measured value. So for, for oxygen saturation, but yeah. again, for, for people watching, oxygen saturation and the uh, it was wrong. <laughs> the measurement from the from the ABG, they're different things. Yeah, but anyway, we'll assume she has the most accurate one. Sure. Yes. And then, um, so we talked a little bit about heart rate and breathing rates, but yeah. are there specific metrics for, for each of these groups on, on those things? We have normal values for them, but one of the yeah. things I looked for and did not see, and maybe you did because you've seen these papers in more detail than me. For example, um, the, uh, the Tibetans were increasing their respiratory rate at altitude, but so would I. Right. Was their respiratory rate at altitude different than mine would be at altitude? Mm -hmm. And is their respiratory rate at sea level different than mine would be at sea level? Or are we comparing an altitude respiratory rate for the Tibetans with a sea level respiratory rate for me? Right. So I think like the red blood cell response, just like you would make more red blood cells than the Andeans do too, but the Andeans are a little bit better at it, I think we see the same thing with, uh, with, with the minute ventilation. That's how much air is being moved mm -hmm. back and forth between the atmosphere and the lungs and the actual respiratory rate. So the Tibetans, are they're, they're better able to ramp that up than we are. And we saw that with that variation slide where there's this tremendous variation. Yeah, oh, so yeah. the idea is that if you, you know, have a Tibetan at high altitude make him exercise or her exercise, it's going to really go up, whereas we would have a hard time getting our, our respiratory rate mm -hmm. to, to that to that In that rate. case, I would predict that they have naturally lower mm -hmm. levels of carbonic anhydrase, or at least some similar adaptation that keeps them from al alkalinizing when we, they hyperventilate. We, we need to like have a running list of coffee's questions, because these are all we excellent do. questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to keep up here. Yeah. What, about, what about VO2 max? Like that's, that's mm -hmm. giving you respiration, so, right? So the VO2 max is a measure of how much oxygen you are able to onload, right? Okay. And there is a maximum, and that's going to that's right. going to limit how much. And we were interested in this in athletics and in, in <clears throat> kind of physical fitness because right. it limits how much exercise you're able to. How much do. you can extract, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to look at both the arterial saturation and the difference between the arterial and venous saturation. It's a measure of your ability to strip oxygen off the hemoglobin and use it to make ATP. And you but you can me, but you can measure or estimate a VO2 max based on. Um, the composition of the inhaled gases and the composition of the exhaled gases. So you've seen those pictures of the people on the little exercycles, and they got the little mask with like those little breathing apparatus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. You yeah, can get yeah. some sense of a VO2 max based on yeah how much oxygen is delivered and how much carbon dioxide that, that they're. That and you can do it very exactly. You can say yeah, how much oxygen was used up between the inhale sample and the exhale mm -hmm. sample. And how much, how many liters per minute of air are they moving? And you can actually calculate almost down to the molecule how much oxygen they're using. Yeah. So if you're better fit, and you have muscle tissue which works better, and you have more muscle, your VO2 is going to be going to be higher because you are going to um, your lungs are going to bring on oxygen. It's going to be used up by by muscle activity, etc. So the question is, what happens at altitude? Short answer is, I don't know. That's interesting. It's usually measured in yeah. METs, and uh, boxers yeah. have one of the highest METs of athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, with, so, yeah. so Good question. going back Great to this, question. this graph here, or chart, I guess. Yeah. So we can see that 
the Ethiopians are not, they don't have these particular adaptations. Mm -hmm. What do they have? Uh -huh. Do we know what it is that allows them to still kind of prevent some of these problems at high altitude without having these other Well, we know they don't have the uh, hypoxic vasodilation, cerebral vasodilation, so that's right. one of their adaptations. Okay. So you can actually measure that. You can use, you can use a Doppler and look at um, even, you know, we listen babies, right? So babies have a soft spot, so you can put a Doppler right. probe and you can actually measure their brain directly. But, you can, but you, can, you can measure somehow with a specialized ultrasound probe mm -hmm. through the skull and get an idea about how much the, the blood vessels dilate. So they've done that with the Ethiopians. They've done that with the Tibetans. And both, the, both those groups show a relative insensitivity to hypoxia. Okay. Right? But again, the Ethiopians so aren't but, even hypoxic. But like, so, but right? what causes that? Like, what allows that to happen? Like, what physiological change do they have that allows them to be less sensitive to that? So That's part of it has to do with this EPAS <clears throat> thing you talked about, and part of it has to do with um, yeah, how they <laughs> use and traffic nitric oxide. Okay. Nitric oxide is, is the kind of master regulator of uh, mm, okay. vasodilation and vasoconstriction. Now that can happen in at least a couple of places. Mm -hmm. How much of it do they make? How briskly do they release it? And how sensitive are the receptors yeah. that respond to it? Yeah. Do we know gotcha. where in that chain this is happening? Yeah. So listen, it hasn't it hasn't been that, that well worked out, yeah. and right. they still need to send some folks out to these high altitude populations. It's harder, and it can be very very difficult to get to these remote places in Ethiopia and have the equipment that you need to measure these things. So that's kind of that's kind of a crazy thing. And you yeah. raise kind of an interesting point. We've asked a lot of questions here, yeah. sort of as if, well, surely anybody would know this. Of course, yeah. people actually get up, put stuff in a bag, travel to Ethiopia on a yep. thin National Science Foundation budget, you know, that's like charging, that's like nickel and diming them every mm -hmm. step of the way, and live in a village and there's, you know, grass shacks and stuff, and they're talking the local people into letting them get blood gases, which is a painful blood drop, by the yeah, way. And And we're going, now, what about these other 50 data points we'd be interested <laughs> in? Did you get those, did you do an MRI while you were there? Uh, we're just yeah. big nerds. That's right. Yep. So it's okay to ask the questions, but there's nothing surprising about not always getting the answer. But yeah, yeah listen, sure. I, when I first heard this a version of this <laughs> talk, and the, the, the end result was, well, we, we must know, like, we're going to know in a year or two, right? And that was in 2005. I, I met with Cynthia Bell a few weeks ago. We still don't know. We don't know exactly. What, really, we don't really know what's up with the Tibetans, because yeah. they do some special things too, and they're easier to study and easier to get to. And we really don't know what's going on with the Ethiopians. So the mechanisms have not been all that well worked out. It is amazing how much effort goes into adding each new increment of yeah. knowledge. And my mm -hmm. hat's off to researchers like you two, I am not one, who do this. And thank you so much, actually. It's hard. It, it's hard, Coffee. It's hard. <laughs> but it's also great, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's fun sometimes. That's right. um, yeah. I'm in the writing stage at the moment, so it's like, I would say the most boring of the process, like the most yeah. boring part of the process. My dad's an academic and I, I, I asked him, he's still, he's retired, but he still gets up in the morning, sits down <coughs> his computer, types out a little manuscript, you know, still publishing. Spoiler uh, alert, the yeah. first line of Kate's thesis yeah. is, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or the night is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> <laughs> Which is it? But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, the writing part is not fun as far as I'm concerned. I totally agree. Yeah, I I generally prefer the data analysis and interpretation. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Data so collection can be fun, fun too, but it's fun getting the answer, long. right? Yeah, for sure. And then once you get the answer, it's like, okay, then now you I gotta have to do like, something with gotta it. massage it, gotta get this in the right format. Richard Feynman, <laughs> one of the fathers of yeah. uh, quantum thermodynamics, um, wrote a book called <clears throat> The Pleasure, The Joy of Finding Things Out. Mm -hmm. And I love that book title. I just love that. It's like says it every, all of I it know, right, right there. Right. I'll put that in my like the dedication at the beginning or yeah. something. <laughs> uh, so that pretty much summarizes the altitude superpowers. Yeah. The Andeans, yes. the Ethiopians. So the Ethiopians do it the best. They do yep. it the best from an evolutionary perspective because maybe they did the low-hanging fruit 60,000 years ago. We don't really know exactly how long they lived there. There was some debate about that. Right. Um, but part of it, at least some people Arguably think... Arguably a lot longer than Andes and Yeah, so Tibet. we're all out of Africa, right? So Andes have lived there, we think, 11, 10, 
12,000 years. Yeah. There's debate yep. on that, but definitely less time. Less time than the Tibetans that have been there <laughs> for about 20,000 years. The Ethiopians, again, some debate, but some people think that they've been there for 50,000, 60,000 years. Yeah, oh yeah. So more time, more time for adaptation. More time for those mutations to pop up that are favorable and may actually be beneficial. Allow you to you know, have a, a blunted response to cerebral vasodilation. That sort of thing. Yeah. So the, the time of residence uh, actually matters. And we're talking time for populations, not time for a single individual. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right, so moving on from altitude now. <coughs> mm -hmm. Other just, cool superpowers. Oh, oh, oh. Ice. Talk a little bit about coldness. Cool. Oh, we haven't talked about this. Well, this is sort of a new one. Okay. And, and I, I found this paper. Is that Hoff we're looking at there? This is actually uh, this is a student where we do a hypothermia lab. And, and this is, Ooh. okay. I, I would as, be terrible. As the instructor, this. I've done this myself. We get into the enrollment in your class just dropped. We, we go into an ice second. bath or or, or, a, or a, actually get embedded in snow. We, and we do this to people using a little uh, um, the little breathing device, a little snorkel that allows you to breathe in an avalanche. Anyway, fun stuff. No, thank you. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> so if there's a superpower for dealing with high altitude, is there a superpower for de dealing with extremes of temperature? And there probably are some genes that allow you to deal with this better. So here are a couple of them. ADRA, 2A, and 2C. Okay. All right? So these have to do with vasoconstriction in response to painful and cold Ooh, stimuli. Okay. So they, these are two genes that seem to do this differently if you're at high latitudes or exposed to cold. So, I, and that's all I'm going to say about this, because we don't really understand exactly what's going on here. But we, if you look for these kinds of things, chances are you're going to find them. And there isn't a single population, like, or three populations, like we found <clears throat> with high altitude, that we know about the cold. But I just wanted hmm. to pop this one in there. I think we can kind of move on to uh, So if we raised the Eskimo child here in mm -hmm. Albuquerque, would they um, be more tolerant to cold weather, uh, or would they... <laughs> Um, respond to their first snow the same way everybody else would respond to the first time they got dropped. They'd have snow. 70 words for it. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that's... Heard that the Inuit have is a... Is that an adapted population? Um, so this this is a... There's a gradient that goes by latitude for this. And okay. I, and I don't, I'd have to go back and look at the paper to see if it's in the Inuit. So there's this Native American group and looks like the, like the Indians... Um, it's possible that anyone have not been at high, high cold mm -hmm. and high latitudes as long as some other groups. Sure. I'm not 100% sure about that. Okay. So do we know anything about how this might relate to just sort of normal human variation cold tolerance? Because I am very cold intolerant. Hmm. I and your people are from it. Scotland. That's right. I know. I'm from Massachusetts, but I live in Albuquerque. Yeah. It's much warmer here. I much prefer it. Yeah. But yeah, I am very cold intolerant. I do not do well in the cold. So I mm. wonder if like, you know, maybe I have some sort of variance. So 23 and me, are these these, these, uh, these companies, not only are they going to archive your <clears throat> DNA in case you ever commit a felony or, a, or worse, yeah. um, but maybe they, they can tell you something about these kinds of things. You know, do you have genes for sure. cold adaptation? Right. Do you have genes for maybe for altitude? Probably not unless you're Tibetan. Yeah. So there's fewer Maybe. people that have lived at high altitude than have been exposed to cold. Yes, I'm having absolutely. my head frozen oh, yeah. in a secret vault at Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, there Disneyland, you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, uh, Walt Disney has his... That's right. He's frozen, right? No. A couple other people. legend. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um, all, right. all right. Underwater. Underwater. Under the sea. So we took this picture on... Uh, we did a, oh, a dive nice. trip to Hawaii. That's a great photo. Oh, so pretty. This is the big island. The reefs there are, are in really good shape. This is off, off of uh, Kona. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope they're still in good shape. And you, every, all the reefs worldwide are being degraded they at are. a pretty rapid rate. Even yeah, places yeah. where they have reasonably good environmental rules and, um, and that kind of thing. But anyway. there's no global warming. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> That was a big kappa moment, let's say. Yeah. We have a so, really wonderful emote that connotes sarcasm. Not me personally, but Twitch. Oh, I thought you did. Um, so, yeah. I gotta check it out. Because that'd be useful just for email, right? 
I know. Right? So we've, I mean, this is like, I use it all the time now and I uh -huh. like almost in a way that's annoying. I might get it as <laughs> but a it tattoo. But it is the, uh, right. <laughs> it is the sarcasm punctuation we've all been looking for for like a decade. Because don't you hate it? I know. When they take you seriously? Yep. Coffee? You can just put a cap <laughs> behind whatever you say and it's like, it's lovely. Right. It's like only on Twitch. <laughs> the bottom line is for us, if we want to go diving, we have to have all this gear, right? We got to have our... Oh yeah. Our masks, our fin, our wetsuits, our regulators, our buoyancy control devices, mm -hmm. all this kind of nonsense. A bit of specialized training. And we still die occasionally, right? Um, but the Bajau people in Malaysia. Oh wait, so before oh, we get to the Bajau, these are the Ama. Oh, okay. The Ama are mostly women divers mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. from Japan. So there's two groups of people that really have spent a lot of time in the water. <clears throat> um, the Ama are one. Okay. They dive, they wear kind of loose fitting uh, fabric. Yeah. Japanese oyster divers. Yeah. I've yeah. actually been there and watched them and, and cool. bought oh, oysters cool. right out of their hand as they came up. That is awesome. Yeah. So they dive with, instead of a wetsuit, sort of clothing, which might possibly keep the warm water closer to their bodies at least mm -hmm. a little bit, they tend to be women. And this is, this is in cold waters of Japan, so the women on average have more body fat than men on average. And it's thought that perhaps that gives them an advantage in, in diving. Uh, but this is a group that that has a long history of, of of free diving, so breath hold diving, right? Right. So that's one group. The other group is the Bajau. Bajau. And this is brand new. Brand new. Brand folks. new. Very cool. So maybe you heard this on Science Friday. They actually they interviewed Cynthia Bell and Michelle Elardo on Science Friday. Very cool. short segment interviewing both of them, talking about the very things that we're talking about right now. Of course, by the people that actually do the research. So I would refer you to that uh, podcast. It's pretty recent. Oh, there's apparently a documentary on Netflix called Fish People about this. I want to see it. Yeah. Thanks, Foxadelic. Good call. Yeah. Nice. So I went, um, my wife and I went on a scuba diving trip to Malaysia, we went to Sipadan, which is an oceanic island that was apparently Jacques Cousteau's favorite place to dive. Oh. Of course, he went there in the 1950s. Sure, when it was, very different. Yeah, absolutely spectacular. Yeah. And by the 1960s, he was complaining about the degraded condition of the reef. Now here we are, what, 60 years later? Yeah. Or 50 years later. And things are obviously not any better, but it still is the best diving I've ever done. Absolutely spectacular. And we saw some of these sea nomads there. We saw actually lots of them. So li cool. living on boats. And they travel from place to place. They're in the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia. And this particular group is called the Bajau. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Spoiler alert, Kevin Costner, Waterworld. Yeah, Waterworld, exactly. <laughs> That's right. So these, the, their superhuman, you know, their, their ability <laughs> is that they can, they can free dive to depths that we would think are absolutely insane. Yep. And they, when, they're, when they are working, so they actually collect things underwater, <laughs> octopus, fish, mm -hmm. etc., um, I think I actually have a photo of one in my archive. I couldn't find it for this. Um, oh, bummer. But I saw it when I was in Philippines, I saw a guy doing, doing some of this stuff. Very cool. Um, but they're able to dive down to, I want to say hundreds of feet depth, which Without. we wouldn't be able to do unless we had yeah. a lot of training. And even wow. then, only a few of us would be able to do it. Um, there's some extreme breath hold free divers. A tiny fraction. This is like the Usain Bolts of the world that do this kind of thing. The Bajau do it, you know, <clears throat> routinely. And children dive to great depths and they can hold their breath for a long time. And they seem to have all kinds of kind of physiologic ways of dealing with this. And one is that um, they're, they don't have the, the carbon dioxide buildup, uh, drive to breathe. They're, it's thought that certainly marine mammals in general, maybe the Bajau too, are relatively able to cope with low oxygen saturations. Um, but the thing that, that uh, Michelle Elardo, I'm sorry, got her name wrong. Yeah. Melissa. Melissa Elardo. Melissa Elardo. Yes. yes, yes, yes. The work that she did is that she went out with a little portable ultrasound and she measured their spleens. And people have talked about marine mammals having big spleens. Sea lions, seals, pinnipeds, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So the idea is that mammals that have to breathe using lungs, we take up oxygen and then we oxygen our, our red blood cells. The idea is that the spleen is this big reservoir that holds red blood cells. And when you need it, it pumps them out. World record for free dive, according yeah. to Wikipedia, is Herbert Nitsch at 702 feet. 702 feet, not a bajow. Did he do it? So there's a bunch of different ways to do this. And the, you can do it with weights. You can do it. Check um, this out. German free diver <laughs> yeah. Tom Sietes. Hell is breath underwater for 22 minutes and 22 seconds. Wow. Ooh, dang. 
Now this would be with uh, pre-oxygenation. Yeah, so hyperventilating. Yeah, and it doesn't say the depth yeah. that he so was So don't at. try this at home. So those are two separate records. If you dive yeah. in 700 feet, you're working hard. You will not be holding <laughs> your breath for 22 minutes. No. Nope. Uh, and no amount of hyperventilation at room air would get would buy you 22 minutes underwater. Right. Um, now, uh, Tom, let's see. Blaine, what's his first name? The magician? That sounds right. David Blaine. Yeah. David Blaine held his breath for something mm -hmm. like 17 minutes, and he uh, trained very, very hard for that. He did not make the world record, but it was a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. So the inference was the Bajau people have been had this lifestyle for at least hundreds of years, as is documented, <clears throat> and they think that probably for thousands of years. So if they have, like the Andeans for 10,000 years, or the Tibetans for 20,000 years, been exposed to this extreme environment, maybe they will have some physiologic adaptations, like the right. big lungs of Tibetans. Yep. And so it was known that marine mammals had big spleens. They had this idea to go out and take a look at the spleen size. So she went with her little portable ultrasound machine. That was machine smart. And visited with these people. Very smart. Convinced them to get an ultrasound of the spleen, did a nice little measurement in the field, and lo and behold, the Bajau people have big spleens. They For do, reals. indeed. They do. They this, do, this indeed. Is the, uh, this, this crazy work that she did. Now, you know where I'm going to go with this. If we gave them a baby from another population to raise, would that kid develop a big spleen from doing this kind of oh, life? Right, right. And so, if we raise one of their babies in the big city, watching TV and eating nachos right. like Americans, would you not? Would have he have a normal sized spleen? spleen? So, or she. So, I know this from listening to her podcast on Science Friday. Right. So they looked at Bajau that don't dive, and they also have big spleens. Okay. So that kind of gets to that question. So it is a population So it's not thing. just, it's not like getting a tan that you have to be out in the sun. Right, so it's right. not like you have to jump in the water and it gives you automatically a big spleen. So that's that's what tells you this is not an acclimatization yeah. thing. This is a over-generations genetic change. Or as my geeky yeah. scientist friends might say, it's not just a phenotypic difference, it's a genotypic difference. That's right. Use that at your next party. And in this, That's right. But in this case, the genotype matches the phenotype, yep. right? They actually found genes <clears throat> that relate to spleen size that uh, are, um, are in higher representation in the Bajau people, which is totally cool. But they did another thing. Yeah, they found another it shows it on here, PDE-10A yeah. mutation. Yep. Remember that, it's on the test. I feel yes. better. I got rejected by that one Bajau girl, but now I know it's just because she's a bigot about spleens. She thought my spleen was too small, and I felt I, I had an issue about you know, it. Yeah, sizes and everything, man. I had to see a therapist. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's surgery for that now. Spleen Viagra? <laughs> Can you imagine one of them got in a car accident? You had your what removed? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No spleen shaming, please. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> All right. So, but so they thought, well, maybe maybe it's just drift, right? Maybe this is a random thing that people right. in this area, you know, just by by some shared genetic relatedness, a fluke of history, mm -hmm. they just happen to have this gene, happens to give them big spleens, has nothing to do with diving. There's no function here. This is just a random stochastic to say yes a science sciencey word mm -hmm. um, thing that we that we see in a, in a particular group well she looked at this by finding a very closely related group that didn't have the, the shared diving history and I forget the name of these folks uh, it's in the paper is it in here at all uh, I hope so yeah I remember it's in the paper it's actually maybe it's on the next slide I'll, I'll find it for you while you go uh, yeah. oh these pictures are lovely by James Morgan let's go to the next slide it is the Saluan, all right? Oh, okay. Saluan Green Group, okay? Saluan. They're, they're, they are closely related, but they don't dive. And the Saluan have small spleens. They don't have that particular gene allele that confers the <coughs> capacity to have a big spleen, all right? Mm. So that argues that it's really the, the diving, that these people dived. It's not just shared genetic history. It doesn't totally rule out the drift, the, the random idea, but it, it goes along with this hypothesis that it's functional. Uh, it actually helps them dive. Let's kind of go back to the, the previous one. Sure. So I, this this slide, it's uh, James Morgan. You can just yeah. Google this. I think if you just Google Bajau and then click on images, it's one of the first hits. He has some absolutely <coughs> These amazing are gorgeous. photographs of like successful fishing expeditions, the boats that they live on. Um, and what a life. What an amazing thing. Um, of course, like all nomads, they are, you know, they have a tough time and their numbers are diminishing. Um, they're... I'm sure discriminated against by people that, that 
you don't have well there's also the fact that the oceans themselves have less fish nowadays and there's that too so everywhere in fact i think this this guy's site mentions that that in Mm -hmm. the philippines and malaysia they use cyanide to uh, capture live fish for the aquarium trade and they dynamite reefs to collect fish you know for to, to eat um, and I've, I've seen some of these reefs that have been dynamited. Um, yeah, it sounds brutal. It's, yeah, it's, it's shocking. So the Bajau rely on intact reefs. And, they, and this incredibly, this is the most biodiverse coral reef biology you know, ecosystem in the whole world. And they rely on that natural, you know, biodiver- the wealth of biodiversity to survive. If the reefs degraded with cyanide dynamite, they can't live. They can't make it. But they do seem to have this amazing superpower which allows them to dive. And you, you might ask yourself, well, how can they even see underwater? And they would take, they would make wooden masks and they would, they would basically wear them down, sand them or however they did this. Mm-hmm. They would manufacture them so that the wood was extremely thin and it was just one little layer of wood that was watertight, but they could actually see through it. That's interesting. Oh my God. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. It's yeah. amazing. And yet tough it's enough like to stand up to, to the pressure of the water changing as they move around and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just really remarkable. If you think like, that, like, oh paper wouldn't survive must have, that. It must have been some really tough You could get that watertight? Well, I do. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's incredible. So I think James Morgan might have a, um, a documentary about this. That is incredible. But what a, what a cool group to study. What an amazing lifestyle. And these people wow. do people. They do, bottom line, they have superpowers compared to us. They yeah, can oh, do yeah. stuff. They can dive deeper. They can spend more time underwater. They can have success at hunting. All right. I've actually spent, I spent an afternoon trying to spearfish off the coast yeah, of yeah. San Diego. I couldn't do it. <laughs> That's with a mask and a wetsuit and a spear gun. I know? did that once and was very <laughs> successful, but I'm not allowed to go back to SeaWorld. <laughs> <laughs> this is why oh, we keep yeah. you around, Cappy. We love the jokes. We love them. <laughs> anyway, I couldn't, I couldn't get a fish. These people are good at it, all right? So that's for fitness and success, evolutionary success, being a, being a good diver, um, actually being able to have you know, do this stuff is pretty remarkable. And they've done it for hundreds of years, if that not thousands. That is so cool. And I, 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 would, I would estimate that it's thousands. It yeah. seems like one of the more challenging lifestyles for a, a population to have adopted. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But also probably necessary for the environment in which they live. Okay, this is like clearly the quote of the evening from Foxadelic. Dr. Coffee is the Mitch Hedberg of evolutionary medicine. I think that's totally true. <laughs> Mitch Hedberg. Yeah, I think that's really true. That's solid. Solid. <laughs> I bet he likes rice too. <laughs> Grady actually, aka Hosebeats, has has a pretty good Mitch Hedberg impression actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. He's good at doing the the one-liners. So, yeah, I really want to see these wooden masks. This is really, that's Mm -hmm. like maybe the coolest thing I've heard in a long time, for sure. Besides eye motifs. Did you guys see the eye motifs thing last Mm -hmm. week? So they've essentially found an additional uh, DNA structure besides the double helix. And it's been seen in other species before, but now has first been observed in humans. Are they plasmids? Uh, no, it's like, so it's it's basically kind of like a deconstructed double helix where the, it's basically, there's a, um, so you've got double helix on either side, pretend this is a double helix where my fingers are, and then one one half of the double helix kind of breaks off and go, comes down and does this little extra oh, cool. loop thing and then comes back into double helix on the other side. All right. And it I has, it has a regulatory function. before, yeah. yeah. And it, we've seen it in other species before, but we just now first observed it. Who knew? crazy i'd never heard of it yeah <clears throat> so that was super cool too so that seems like that would lead to a permanently activated gene one that wouldn't be potentially active. yeah and it is ha- it is a gene expression function for sure i guess you could still tie it up by wrapping it around the histone mm. Mm. interesting anyway it's right, an aside. back to our show that's an aside um but cool stuff if you haven't if you haven't looked up or seen anything about eye motifs definitely check it out just google like Pretend it's a it's a new Apple device. It's literally eye motifs. Oh, no I way. thought it was something yeah, like fleek. Yeah. I was imagining yeah, right. an eyeball. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? But like uh-huh. it's it's to me it sounds like some sort of new Apple de- device that helps you do like interior decor. It does. Or it's a very 
you know. <laughs> Catchy name. Yeah, the, the for sure. Motif. Yep. I like it. <clears throat> Science. So I think we need to say a little bit more about the spleen itself. Why? Yeah. Why this oh, large yeah. spleen is associated with this adaptation? Here, let's. We'll come back here. So you know, Good I've question. gone through, you know, four plus decades of life, mm -hmm. medical school, training. I'm sure I took a physiology class along the way. I had no idea the spleen could have this function. Well, we've known in trauma for a long yeah. time that when people hemorrhage, uh, you know, get severe wounds and so forth, the spleen can auto-transfuse them a unit Ooh. or two of blood. So cool. this right. is not a complete surprise, not surprise, not totally out of left field, <clears throat> but this adaptation of that function is new to me. But I wasn't aware of it also having that, this, this function of oxygen delivery, like for exercise. There's some there's some evidence that, that has that function that that athletes really would benefit by having a spleen temporarily boost oh, your yeah, hematocrit sure. yeah, yeah. during and we're talking during about like for, spr for sprinting so like for for like a marathon mm. it probably wouldn't make a difference but if you had to you know for a, a soccer like Usain Bolt I bet he's Usain got a big Bolt. spleen he might yeah so I mean I bet that Beju girl wouldn't have turned him down no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so with these divers too, yeah. it's it's not only an oxygen thing, but there is added pressure too from going down. So I wonder if that has stuff. something to do with it. Potentially, there's, yeah. I mean, I don't know, buoyancy issues. Well, I'll tell you one thing that happens. All right, so, so for all of us, if you hold your breath and you <clears throat> jump into a pool, yep, and you dive underwater because of the pressure changes, mm -hmm. your lungs will collapse. Oh. All right? They don't collapse all that. the way, but your lungs will shrink mm -hmm. as, a, as a feature of how, how deep you go. Okay. So most marine mammals can cope with this and actually have a way of kind of shunting blood up into their thorax. Mm -hmm. All right? So if you're a seal or a whale or a dolphin, um, your lungs will collapse almost down to nothing, but you, you're, you have this comp compensatory delivery of blood to fill up, kind of fill up the space. And it's possible the spleen does that. And the bejao may benefit from that too. Okay. So that's interesting. That's one thing. The other thing, but hmm. you can actually get, so decompression sickness is, is a problem really for breathing compressed gas. So oh, okay. when you breathe compressed gas and you unload a ton of nitrogen into your bloodstream and then it comes out as little bubbles, like when you open up a Coke can mm -hmm. after shaking it, right. same thing can happen to your blood. We see this in scuba divers. It can happen it, to breath hold divers too. You come up too fast, right? Too. The bends. Yeah, the yep, bends. The bends. The bends can, you can get a version of the bends if you do a tremendous amount of free diving, <clears> like <throat> the bajau do. So mm -hmm. it's possible they may have access to some adaptations that help them with the bends too. Now, if we're going to speculate that the spleen is involved in compensating mm -hmm. for the volume loss in the thorax, right. which I doubt, yeah. that would be the no opposite of it contracting and uh, increasing your hematocrit. Because if it contracts, it takes less volume, and therefore it's not displacing sure. well, volume. Well, the spleen isn't so much in your thorax; it's going to squeeze out that blood. The blood would then fill vessels in your thorax. For those of you playing mm. along at home, your spleen lives right here underneath your left ribs. Yep. Right and there. the bottom of the spleen is right about where the the bony part of your ribs joins your abdomen. And here. unless you're, you'd have to come up under it like that <laughs> to touch your spleen. Yeah, it is. It is largely protected by the rib cage, but not yeah. maybe not completely. Unless you're a bajau, or unless you have malaria. Or mononucleosis. You shouldn't be able to feel yeah. it. So if you have mononucleosis, don't play football with people from the Bajau tribe. You'll all nope. die. <laughs> but you'll be very attractive. Yeah, Sorry. big spleens. <laughs> you do go for a big Remember, spleen. Remember, no spleen shaving. You go for the big spleens. <laughs> so for the duration of your mono, you'll be very attractive in at That's least right. one part of the world. That's right. Good to know. But I, I think that, you know, so um, Dr. Lardo has come on this really interesting area, and, there's, and we can just look for some of these other kinds of things that we see in other, other marine mammals and see if, they are, if there's something like that right. in the Bajau people. Yeah. I'm going to work that into a medical chart. This guy's spleen is bigger than a Bajau with, mo with mononucleosis. <laughs> 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 I'm so using that line. <laughs> Oh man! Love it. Oh, oh, that might be the no that, nerdiest joke I've heard say, in a while. That, that's that's so like good. a medical dad it's joke. So good! Oh my god! All right. Uh, awesome. So, Poxadelic is asking, how does the spleen avoid hematoma with compression issues? So, like hematoma is a bigger, blood clot. Yeah. So, like, but yeah. like, 
I guess, so I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. I had a friend who had an enlarged spleen that was a congenital issue, yeah. and she had to be very careful in crowds because if she got hit um, by someone, that would be potentially danger dangerous for her spleen. So I'm guessing that's kind Does of that the happen? same. People just walk around crowds going, bam! Well, it was it was a concert situation. <laughs> okay, like heavy mosh metal. Pit, mosh pit, you know. all right, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So... So yeah, maybe I, I'm guessing that's kind of a similar realm of this. Question. I was only half joking. There are some sports I would not recommend for yeah, people yeah. from this population. Sure. Yeah. But they may actually be better at certain things. And kickboxing wouldn't be one. Potentially. Of them. Kickboxing, not one. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You don't want to get kicked. That's in the, the downside. Lane. Look, everything comes with a downside, right? Yep. So yeah, but that's success true. at underwater fishing might outweigh the occasional right. kickboxing incident. Because in this particular environment being able to go fish and, you know, feed yourself to potentially have babies at some point, important. And this mm. is why underwater kickboxing never made it to the Olympics. No. Mm. It's like, be very slow motion, like... Well, I was wondering if, it, if the Bajau do fight underwater. It's possible. Oh, I don't know. If they do, I bet they do it with pokey sticks. Right. <clears throat> <laughs> Probably, yeah. Spears. Keeping their spleen out of the way. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Spleen dodging. <laughs> okay. Um, do we have any more slides? No. Let's. No. We've got this guy. Right. The, this one. was. The, we already kind of talked about this. Yeah. I think. Oh, and that's. Let's see. Uh, it's a big spleen. Oh, that's it. That's the yeah, end. That's it. That's the end of the the slideshow. Okay. Cool. Um, it's like <clears throat> I mean. We talked about superpowers. We talked about the high altitude folks. We talked about yes. the Bajau. Mm -hmm. We talked about this, these genes that allow maybe better capacity to deal with cold. Right. We just touched on that one. Um, there are, I'm sure, lots and lots of other things you know that would give people these unique abilities that are pretty cool. You know, along the lines of uh, these genetic differences and are they superpowers? Um, we think of colorblindness as a deficit, mm -hmm. but uh, people who are colorblind function better at night and also have better, um, can pick up motions in their peripheral vision a little bit better as well because yeah. they have an increased percentage of rods. Sure. Yeah. Oliver Sacks has a book called Island of the Colorblind. Mm. I don't think he talks about that though. Interesting. But yeah, but if there was a. Printed in black and white. If there were people that lived nice. on the dark side of the moon or lived in a nocturnal environment mm -hmm. underground. Maybe there'd be more colorblindness. More locks. Yeah. More locks. Yeah. One of my favorite books. I have a copy right over there. Yeah. Time machine. Um, so question about us as people. What are mm -hmm. what are our specialties? So I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. Um, I'm working on my PhD. I'm almost done. Yay. My superpower is that I can hear in total darkness. <laughs> nice. There you go. And then you too? I'm just a regular ER doc. <clears throat> you act like that's no, not a big deal. No superpowers whatsoever. <laughs> I was a regular ER doc, tell you what, and now I'm a regular school teacher. Uh, my superpower in the ER is that I've almost lost my sense of smell. That's totally <laughs> oh, oh, I so like That's there's, also a superpower if you want to work at crime scenes. Ripe smells. I so envy you. In the ER. And, uh, oh, yeah. They don't really phase me. Oh, man. That's pretty funny. How does how does that happen? How's <laughs> what happened? Like, why did you lose your sense of smell? I don't think I've lost it, but it's, it's just, just diminished. It's diminished. You're just yeah. desensitized. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's that's pretty valuable. Right. Yeah, I, I've definitely been at some because I also have done forensic anthropology. Um, I've definitely been at some crime scenes where I would have wanted that superpower uh -huh. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, too much coke. I mean, I, I, <laughs> that's I, I, the other way you I, do that it. Could be it. <laughs> At a crime scene, though, you can just kind of turn and throw up if you need to, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But on a patient, you don't really want to throw yeah, up you on don't, them. Yeah, that's really bad. The opposite manner. has definitely happened. Where you get thrown up on? Every body fluid has like made its way oh, onto yeah. me. Yeah, for sure. Pretty much. It sounds Not like, every body fluid. It's like being, a, being doctors and being <laughs> right. parents. I had a patient the once same who was hit, was, he had bad trauma. He was, mm -hmm. had multiple trauma, but among mm -hmm. them was a head injury. And I saw, I saw this guy start to sit bolt upright, and I realized he was going to puke, and I dodged, and I could actually see this sphere of blood 
oh. moving through the air past me. It was like something in the Matrix. Oh my like, god! It was just crystal clear yeah. watching this thing go by and miss me by like that much. Oh my god, that's crazy. <laughs> so Pat McKinney, who was a toxicologist in our department. Um, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. But he had a story where uh, back in the day when you had an overdose, they would put this orogaster tube down into your stomach. It's called pumping your stomach if you have an overdose. About as big as your thumb. Yeah, so he was like snaking this thing down the stomach. Nothing's coming out. Then this woman had just like, you know, had a, huge, a, a bottle full of pills. They, they knew the stomach was full of, of something. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting there, he's, he's doing this. He then kind of he kind of looks looks at it, and all of a sudden there's this jet of fluid, and unfortunately oh. his mouth was open. Oh, oh no! Oh god! Would you um, <laughs> would you retell that, your yeah. story as as authentically as possible? The the we dropped some frames and and people missed the story. The whole thing. The 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 story that Coffee just told. Oh, oh um, no! Yeah. When people get uh, traumatic head injury, they often vomit. And this guy also had abdominal and thoracic injuries. And so my unconscious patient suddenly sat bolt upright mm. and I realized he was vomiting. So I jerked away and as I did, this literally a round ball of blood came traveling through the air right through where my head had been. And I swear I could see this thing go by in slow motion like a special effect from a movie. That I can see crazy. it to this day very clearly. Mm -hmm. It was about... It looked like about that big as I'm remembering it, which seems too big. But, That's insane. And yeah, and I got hit by a little bit You're of sun like, spray, but I, yeah. I dodged a softball <laughs> at least. You know. Yeah. So my, my similar story is that when I was working at Harbor UCLA as a medical student, there was never enough beds for people, so they sent me out in the, in the pediatric ER to examine this kid and the family out in the waiting room. And they were all in these little chairs, and they were sitting there munching on things. There's a Cheetos bag there, and I'm looking at this kid and trying to figure out what's, what's wrong with them. Get my tongue depressor, and I'm taking a look in the mouth. And then the kid goes, and there's this technicolor jet of uh, fluorescent orange vomitus. Like exorcist style. Yeah, that I did not miss. <laughs> I, got, I got the full brunt of that one. So, liquefied Cheetos, people. Not a good thing. Gross. Gross, and now gross, you know gross. what we get the big bucks for. <laughs> yeah, Next right? week, we'll tell you some of the gross stories. Yeah, right. seriously. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah. So, let's let's tie a bow on our, our mm -hmm. human superpower story. And then I believe we had some people in chat who wanted to just do open Q&A, possibly about some microbiome stuff, if you are yeah. willing. Um, Always. So, let me know if you guys have questions about being a physician, about this show in general, about microbiome stuff, mm -hmm. whatever. Throw them on in. Or about how cool it is to be an evolutionary anthropologist, for example. Yeah, who's almost right. done with her PhD. I know. I know, guys. Thesis. Yep. Nice. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, we, we're we kind of calling these things human superpowers. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, mostly in a, a lighthearted, clickbaity way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it kind of is true. Um and it, it's a it's a unique way of thinking about human adaptation, um, which right. is something that has fueled our evolution and every organism's evolution for a really long time, and that's pretty cool. So well, it's pretty cool. It's also you know when we think, especially in medicine, <clears throat> when people talk about mutations or even for sickle cell, um, which is kind of a superpower that you can survive, you know, being infect you know infected with Plasmodium malaria. But we think about it really in terms of disease. That these are mutations that give people a special um, propensity to get diseases. Right. And in northern New Mexico, there's a mutation that gives people an abnormal blood vessel that causes brain bleeding and problems. There's no benefit to that one, and that one's caused by drift. Um, mm. So it's not an adaptation at all. But usually, so usually in medicine, we're talking. We're not talking about the superpowers. We're talking about the problems. <laughs> but there's some really, really good. I think that these are some of the best examples of talking about how we humans have evolved, showing evidence of evolution, good examples of adaptation that really do give people some remarkable abilities that we, normal people, mm -hmm. not high altitude, not, not really normal. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the wrong word. Yeah. But lowlander, non-diving people. Um, I absolutely lack these superpowers. Yep. Well, and now, this kind of adaptation is going to be by selection, as you pointed out mm -hmm. earlier, by altering mm -hmm. uh, the frequency of certain alleles in a population for the most part. Right. And that kind of selection will trend toward better and better adaptation to a specific environment. 
that's a moving target. So there、yes. is no end to that game. Absolutely, you have to keep readapting to new、uh, environments. Right. Mutations generally. There's an alteration in a gene which presumably worked and did its job before. So most alterations are going to make the gene not do its job and are going to be detrimental to the organism. You can you once in a while. You actually can have a lot of mutations that have absolutely no change. In and、function. many of them have no. They just you can even wind up not having a change in the amino acid sequence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But、um, yeah. Once in a while, just by random chance, a mutation can have some benefit to it.、Mm -hmm. Even when that happens, there's no particular reason to expect the adaptation. This positive adaptation is the one you need right now. So it、right. might be that I get an adaptation that lets me see better in the dark. I'm just lucky. I just got that mutation. Yep. But what I really needed was an adaptation that would prevent me from getting pancreatic cancer, so I die without having shared this gene along. Yep. So even when a mutation is positive, it doesn't confer any particular、uh, reproductive benefit. Unless that adaptation is also matched to the, environment. the environmental needs of the moment. Absolutely.、Yeah. If it's neutral, it can hang around for a while, and then if later that's a positive adaptation and some of the population has it by random、yeah. genetic drift, then it can get sorted for. So those are some of the ways that evolution can work. It's a really, really simple process, in principle. But the ways that it plays out gets really complicated fast. It's like chess. The rules of chess are really simple. You can learn chess in what thirty minutes, I would say.、Yeah. But getting good at chess takes many,、sure. many years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And understanding the ramifications of the simple rules of evolution takes a long, long time. And often we only understand them backward. We don't correctly predict going forward how things will play out, and we get a surprise. We go, well, wait. How does that fit? And then when you work it backward, you go, "Oh, now I see how it makes sense." Yeah, it's like solving an Agatha Christie mystery by reading the back of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And and、mm -hmm. on、mm -hmm. kind of the flip side of that, not only are we sort of trying to identify adaptations, but we also can be prone to calling something an adaptation when it's not an adaptation. Right.、Um, so so for like this paper, <clears throat> you have to do some special things to call it an adaptation. Yeah. She has to show that the feature. Is present in this population, but not in the closely related population that doesn't dive.、Mm -hmm. She has to show there's a gene that gives you a bigger spleen, which、right. is present in this group and not in other groups. Right. And she has to show that the people with that gene, even if they don't dive, that they have it.、Yeah. Um, and there's more work that she can do, and I'm sure she will do. So you can make a career out of this. The rationale. Yeah, theoretically, this, you also have to be able、mm -hmm. to show that it gives you some sort of reproductive fitness benefit. That would be that would be ideal. Yeah. So we're still making、yeah. the problem, which is not always the case. Yeah. The issue with science. Is that yeah? She's not proven that this gene or this or the large, large spleen actually is an adaptation. Right. She but she has, by inference, shown that the evidence lines up in that direction. Yep. The process for this、uh, is a tight analogy for Cox postulates,、uh, which you might have learned in grade school as germ theory.、Mm -hmm. So Cox postulates basically approaches. The idea of are germs the cause of disease in exactly the same way as you're talking about approaching is this spleen an adaptation to a、sure. nomadic、uh, marine lifestyle,、mm -hmm. right?、Uh, pelagic lifestyle. Yeah, yeah.、Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think that might be that might do it. Let's go to the questions. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. So a Wait, couple. What was the last one? Uh. Well, we'll get there. A couple silly ones. I for saw something poop. Yes. It caught my yes, attention. Yes. 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 I got yes. excited. Um, I'll save it because that's、right. that's where we <laughs> always、should. end up talking. So,、um, how so? How many dinosaurs have I worked on? Zero. It's this is a sort of a running joke. Because, Wait, living or dead?、Um, <laughs> presumably dead. Yes, but I have not worked with any living ones either,、hmm. except for all the road runners I see that's, walking that's, around in、yeah. town. Um, but、uh, but yeah, this is kind of a running joke where everybody thinks anthropology <laughs> is studying dinosaurs,、mm -hmm. and it's not. Do they know what the word what anthro means? <laughs> Probably not.、Uh, I would guess that that、dinosaur. is the root of the problem. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah. yeah. Okay.、Um, and then another one. How many times per episode of of a show like Bones or CSI do I facepalm? I would say probably <laughs> greater than five, and I would say that with confidence, more than、nice. five times probably.、Um, so let's see. Then we have. So how do we feel about fecal transplants? <laughs> Um, this is something that we talk about all the time,、mm -hmm. all the time. 
We love them. We love them. <laughs> we should. We are them. fans. But you know what? I guess let's let's you know we talked about how at, at high altitude, there's at least some papers that show a leaky gut. You see yeah. microbe products leaking into the gut. This was something we talked yeah. about a little bit earlier. And, I, don't, I don't know if you guys were here. And actually, there's some evidence that decompression sickness also involves pretty much anything that messes you up mm-hmm. will actually disrupt your gut and can cause some some uh, uh, microbe products that go into your bloodstream and cause issues. So the microbiome is important for, um, plays a role in a lot of these diseases. So the implication would be if we didn't have a microbiome, we might be better able to hike Mount Everest, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> we might be protected from decompression sickness. So it's not totally implausible that you could have a specialized fecal transplant that would give you a superpower. Maybe. So you get a fecal transplant <clears throat> from a Sherpa from Tibet, maybe. and maybe you're better at. Yeah, well, you're just, uh, yeah. we know the group of rats became more. Seems like a stretch, but it's a, a testable transplant. hypothesis. It's 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 not totally crazy to think that. Um, ooh, okay, so um, Foxadelic says, we're working on that right now. Um, who are you? What do you do? Please do tell. Um, got any background between... on the link between re- refined carbohydrates and sugar substitutes, particularly sucralose, uh, on the impact of leaky gut? So working on leaky gut, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so Foxadelic's specific area of research is, do carbohydrate analogs, Promote right. or perhaps inhibit leaky gut. Did I say that right? I mean, I know mm-hmm. that people talk a little bit about the fact that we don't necessarily know yet how our bodies deal with sugar substitutes, like physiologically. That's something we're still figuring out, I think. No, that's true. Um, work by Elon Elinov studied mostly saccharin, but he, he, yeah. did a, he did a paper where they looked at three different sugar substitutes and kind of remarkably they caused gut microbiome problems i can't remember if it actually should have caused a leaky gut in that okay. paper i'd have to go back and look at it sure but the animals that that got saccharin and i think they had some uh some sucralose as one of the other um, sucralose is splenda right that's splenda that's yeah. right so that, that's much more common now than saccharin yeah, saccharin yeah. is yeah i don't know is that it equal i can't remember if, if we still saccharin? use saccharin in certain yeah. things anyway um, it made the animals gain weight, and it made the animals look kind of diabetic. So not what you want in a um, in a food product, right? So it was it was it was a result that was unanticipated, uh, but it showed that one it's not it's not the same as eating nothing. All right, right. people imagine that a sugar free uh, sugar substitute is the equivalent of eating nothing, and that's not true. It's not true because your microbes are affected by it and your microbes can make you sick as a result of these downstream uh, impacts of of the Hmm. the food. So we want everything to taste sugary without Mm -hmm. getting all that sugar. And we want everything to taste fatty without getting all that, at least without absorbing all that fat. Hence, Olestra, don't forget to wear two pairs of underwear. My question (laughs) is, why don't we just learn to eat like adults? Good. So yeah, so if you want to uh, eat like an adult and if you want to make your gut um, more robust and have a less leaky gut, one of the answers is to eat fiber. <clears throat> I don't like to brag, but I think my gut's getting pretty Fiber's robust good. these days. That was not. <laughs> Fiber's good. Eat more fiber. Sponsored by fiber. Metamucil. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, um, fiber, fiber, dietary fiber and fruits and vegetables. Yeah, for good sure. Stuff. Yeah. We can actually um, do a podcast on dietary fiber. That's, that's oh, absolutely. way more important. You know, there's, a, oh, yeah. there's a bunch more dietary stuff that we can go into. Yep. Yeah, um, for sure. So Foxadelic is licensed as an RD, mm-hmm. which, I, what is RD? Registered Dietitian. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, but continued education, hopefully soon to be an express care PA. Oh, very nice. There you go. You and rock. they're looking yeah. at endoscopy, particularly confocal laser endomicroscopy, to diagnose histological lesions in the gut-brain axis. Cool! I love the idea. That's very cool. I don't let anybody put anything in my gut yeah. axis that I can't pronounce. <laughs> no, really, really, very, very cool. And I wish you success in doing that. Yeah. <clears throat> That's really neat. Um, yeah, dude. Telling people what to eat is more devices, divisive than talking politics these yeah. days. It's true. Pretty much. Yeah, people, point, they have sure. their strongly held beliefs. Yeah, it's very true. But the problem is, we form our strongly held beliefs about food while we're children, and children don't yeah. have the same metabolic needs that adults do. 
That's true. Yeah. That's true. How about a pill cam for for uh, for the you you said don't put anything down my yeah I was know. kidding yeah. you were thinking I'm the other end with the instrumentation the, the yeah stuff, that's true yeah. <laughs> but pill cams have been around for yeah. a while and mm -hmm. the last I heard they were they're actually um, have a high accuracy as compared I with have, I have had them I've yeah. had one so not only is there the pill kit but there's also a little device I went to a conference recently where they had. It took little samples, you know, at various times. That is super weird. At different weird. places in the That's intestine. That's like if super I ever get robotic. Okay, I'm it was basically this little Pac-Man. It opens it up is, and goes. That is so weird. Oh, I don't like it. So I did not can, have that. Yeah, I just had the normal pill still cam. This was research years and years experimental. ago. Crazy. We all know what happens in Pac-Man, right? I know. Yeah. I'm trying to make the noise. <laughs> Game you over, get people. eaten by Game ghosts. <laughs> Although there's lots of fruit being eaten in Pac-Man, so, right. so it's a fiber-rich environment. Lessons learned. That's right. Yep. Too much um, fruit goes. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> well, um, any any final questions, guys? Um, this has been very, very. Oh, here we go. We got more. During grand rounds the other day, they discussed a drivable pill cam on the horizon mm -hmm. to go against uh -huh. the flow, so to speak. Yeah. Drivable. Yeah, awesome. that's crazy. Wow. That is so cool. Now this wow. is kind of cool. Pill cams are about. awesome. Just for as, anybody who doesn't know just, what a pill cam is. I'm just imagining how that would work. It with replaces nanotechnology an with the and um, drivable pill cam. The old Isaac Asimov movie, Fantastic Voyage, becomes credible. Uh -huh. In that, they had to actually shrink people down. But if you simply right. use an electronic avatar, a yeah. remotely piloted vehicle, or like we every could use episode a of the Magic School Bus. <laughs> Did they do that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. I never saw the Magic School Oh, bus. man. You're missing out. Never saw Sesame Street it. either. Big I would Bird go Magic like School Bus over me, so Sesame Street any day of the week. Any <laughs> right. day of the week. Or Ramoa. Yeah. <laughs> if Big they're Bird. making a drivable pill cam, they should name it after the Magic School Bus. I think that just makes perfect sense to me. Or Fantastic mm -hmm. Voyage. What was the name either of the chip in the Fantastic either Voyage? Way. Oh, I don't oh. remember. I can't remember either. Ooh. We'll call it Derek Hellwell. Chat, tell us. that name. Um... Uh, oh, cool. Oh, Fox Della. Great. That's awesome. He, uh, they said, I just want to say thanks thanks to the th three humors on screen. I thought there were four humors. This is my first time here, and this has been fantastic. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for the feedback. Bile yeah, stayed thank home you. today. Yeah. Bile. Um, <clears throat> I got some bile. <laughs> um, oh, and apparently this person who was talking about the drivable pill cam closed the PowerPoint with a picture of Fantastic Voyage. Dibs on sanguine. There you go. Ooh. That's pretty perfect. Yep. And our quinoa is done. <laughs> um, I don't know if <laughs> you guys can hear that cue. beeping. <laughs> cue for quinoa. Um, <laughs> the quinoa cue. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for hanging out. Um, this was super fun. Um, we can we can talk more about superpowers. We're we're learning more and more about all these kinds of adaptations all the time. So yeah, I didn't I know anything we'll about this. One. Yeah. Um, it was about 10 days ago that I found out about this. The Bajau, yeah. The it Bajau, just came out. Yeah. Just came out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say that as soon as I found out about it, I emailed the primary author. Mm -hmm. I invited her to the conference that we're having in, in Park City on nice. evolutionary medicine. You guys should come. Yeah. And she accepted. So she's going to give a talk. Very cool. And she's going to be one of our featured speakers. She'd be like, I'm awesome. all down for that. Yeah. Yep. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> She's not holding her breath. <laughs> um, she didn't so, bet you were yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should have said when you asked her if she would say yes to a talk. You should have said, "I won't hold my breath." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> thank you guys so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. See you guys. <laughs>